0: High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.
1: Lee Keegan is expected to be back in the starting 15 when Mayo name their team for Sunday's All Ireland Senior Football Championship semi final against Kerry at Croke Park. The 2016 Footballer of the Year was named Man of the Match in the Westerners quarter final draw with Ross Common. He sat out the replay due to a foot injury but is said to have returned to full fitness. Kerry are also set to name their team today. Scott Hogan could play in the Aston Villa team to play Norwich at, Aston, at Villa Park tomorrow. The Manchester born striker who has declared for the Republic of Ireland suffered an ankle injury against Reading on Tuesday. The problem, though, is not as bad as initially feared. Hogan has applied for an Irish passport and could be added to Martin O'Neill's squad for the upcoming World Cup qualifiers against Georgia and Serbia. And Cork City will need just five more points to win the SSE Air League Premier Division title if they beat Sligo Rovers at Turner's Cross tonight. George.
2: All right. uh, Thank you so much, Ross. um, The tragedy in Spain has... uh exercised us all our our news bulletins are full of the stories as you've just heard and we haven't escaped as we know Irish people were involved in Barcelona what I haven't heard and I heard Simon Coveney the Minister for Foreign Affairs today I heard him say that we must be vigilant whatever that means I heard him say that an attack is unlikely how can he dare say an attack is unlikely? Uh, what have Spain done uh, to is- Islamists to merit being attacked? What have the innocent Irish people going about their holiday in, Lam- in Los, uh, Los uh, Ramblas uh, done to merit attack? We have more tourists in this country at this time than perhaps at any time in our history. During 2017, something like 9 million tourists will come to this country. What makes us so special? And we have, and we know... We have a police force whose morale is shot to ribbons. A police force that cannot handle our own homemade terrorists. What chance, then, has a police force without, to the best of my knowledge, a single Muslim uh, Islamist on the force? Where are they going to get the intelligence to prevent attacks? I think it is awful. Let's look, though, at Barcelona. This week, we did a, a story about Barcelona because the city of 4 million people will pick, will have 32 million tourists. And the city, led by its left-wing mayor, is saying, we don't want tourists. Go home. Don't stop in our shops. The police, we have evidence that the police in Barcelona won't help tourists because they just want them out of here. Interestingly, if they were given a choice this morning. What does would Barcelona want? And equally interesting, in February of this year, tens of thousands of Spaniards thronged the streets to protest against what they saw as Spanish failure to accept migrants, led by an organization in called Our Home Is Your Home, they said that with the full support of the mayor, the same mayor who is opposed to tourism, Spain hasn't taken enough. How many people has Spain taken? It has taken 10,000 migrants pretty well and we know nothing about them. We don't know who they are. We don't, know, we don't even know their names because the one thing is absolutely certain. Of course we don't know their names given that one of the suspects in the Barcelona atrocity may well have had a fake ID albeit his brothers, but nevertheless a fake ID. So what do we know about these people? The children we don't even know if they are children. So what Does Spain know about the 10,000 people that it has already expected? The United Nations Commission for Refugees says that Spain cannot cope with the migrants that it is taking. And tens of thousands flock the streets of Spain protesting against its government not taking enough. I wonder if the organization Your Home is Our Home called for a demonstration in Barcelona today to take more migrants, how many would fill its streets? This is no xenophobia. It is not enough for our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, to say an attack is unlikely when in fact he has no idea whether an attack is likely or not. I have no doubt in my mind that the police force in Barcelona probably thought an attack is unlikely. So what are we going to do about it? One thing is absolutely certain that the old ways our old liberal democratic ways of accepting people on face value is no longer enough. The claptrap that successive economists talk about that this country cannot exist without migrants is fine. And only one man, only one man on the entire planet has actually come up with a plan. Flawed it may be, wrong it may be, strange he may be, unintelligent he may be, all sorts of things President Trump may be, but he has done something to attempt to safeguard the people who live in the United States. And the people who live in Ireland, like the United States, in the words of Wolf Tone, are Catholic, Protestant, and dissenter. They also happen to be Jews, Muslims, and every other faith on the planet. All of them innocent, one hopes. They deserve to be protected too. So let's stop carrying on like as if we are living in the only country in the world that is not exposed to terrorism. Let's do something. However, Taoiseach's in Canada, I think, when last seen, uh, so he may have something important to say in due course from Toronto.
3: It is the best sci-fi movie of all time, the best chase film, and it is probably even the best sequel. It is James Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. his groundbreaking special effects extravaganza, which has been restored and will be released in a new 3D version in Irish cinemas on Tuesday week. We'll be talking to the T-1000 himself, Robert Patrick, on The Picture Show this weekend. Another guest on the programme will be Will Poulter, who plays a vicious cop in the Catherine Bigelow
0: race drama Detroit. The Picture Show. With me, Philip Malloy, at 6 on
4: Saturday. On News Talk, 106 to 108.
2: All right, uh, a lot of reaction to Barcelona, of course, and also to the forum on Pat Kenny. Uh, one of them is regard, uh, regards Pat, the Pat Kenny forum. Uh, on it was Neve Lyons of, I hope I'm correct in saying, our newspapers, is Daily Mail, uh, Louise O'Reilly of Sinn Fein, and. Um, the uh, education correspondent, The Irish Times, times hilarious reaction. The listener says from the panel regarding Barcelona attack, a point blank refusal to accept that the problem will grow and European people will eventually vote for people who will protect them. Europe has been ruined. Um, uh regardless of how the president looked at the press conference, he was totally correct. They're all references to the Pat Kennedy Show, but they're coming in now. Thank you for that. Um, Why does Grafton Street not have bollards? What about Grafton Street Says another wide open? Um, Well, what the experts are telling us is that Bollards may not actually work, but what you will also find, if you attempt to put bollards up, then uh, the retail community uh, will probably go uh, bananas. Uh, meanwhile, our main problem is how do we get cyclists into the centre of Dublin? Um, Joe and you, Ross says no need for Mr. Kofni to be alarmist. He can leave that uh, to you. All right, lots more where that came from, but of course, All the talk is about CAO points, uh, but of course we're very lucky in this country, unlike um, the United States of America, where third level education is free. So, Frank Conway is the founder of Moneyways. He's in the studio. Is it free, Frank?
5: No, far from it. Yeah. <laughs> no education. Explain, please. Well, education is always expensive. You know, we tend to look in terms of the UK, where they charge at 9,000 a year, or the US, where it might cost up to 60,000. My old mam- alma mater charges 62,000 a year. But in Ireland, you know, we have this concept that there is free education, but there's a lot of extra costs go into it. And certainly when we look in terms of third-level education, the fees there are 3000 a year. But they're
2: not fees. They're, called
5: they're contributions. Yeah. Okay. So, right. yeah, it's a still a fee. You know, so you have to pay it. But, uh, and people do get grants for all of this. But uh, on the back of that, there are a lot of costs out there. And parents have to pick up a huge part of this tab for kids that are going to college. So it does add up pretty quickly.
2: The the thing, of course, in the good old days, if I can say so, when we only had like four universities in the Republic, the vast majority of people in those universities lived in those cities, Cork, Galway, Dublin. And then there was a percentage, which was quite small, of people from the rest of the country who travelled to the the university. Now, there wasn't a housing shortage, of course, um, and it wasn't as expensive to live, whereas the living cost presumably dwarfs fee cost.
5: Yeah, and th- that's a really good point. The living costs typically will run between fi- 300 400 500 maybe up to 1600 per month, depending on the type of property, depending on the location of the property. But on average, parents are spending around 6000 a year you know, on, on just on the accommodation costs alone, and that's what shared accommodation out there. So that part alone is double what they're paying on those contributions to the colleges themselves. And then beyond that, you have the food, you have the travel, you have all of the other expenses. That big to mount up pretty quickly
2: well given i mean if we look at life generally Mm. you know if if motorcars become hugely expensive we Mm. we keep the motorcar for another five years you know or whatever happens to be the price of something is the old economic law that the price has an effect on demand Mm. why is college costs increasing no effect on demand
5: yeah, and, and that's a good point. This is a discussion I had last year, again, back in the US where costs have gone up you know, to over 60,000 and some of the college professors said education is hugely powerful. It's hugely beneficial to anybody who gets it. And they've done all the studies on this. So it's very hard to get away and argue that you don't need a third level education, even though in some countries, even though Donald Trump is now arguing for those uh, 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 training schemes for a lot of younger people out there, uh, colleges which are linked to education. But broadly, parents want to kids do well. And we tend to do that through education where we get, you know, third level education in a particular scale. Maybe it's English, maybe it's coding, whatever. So it's very hard to break away from that. And so we're not going to say, well, I'm going to give up my child's education because the costs have gone way up. It's unlike the car where we might say, well, we will hold on to the five years. And so when we look in terms of where Dublin is right now, there's a lot of pressure in terms of housing, for example, and that is forcing up the cost of rent. And there's all the other dynamics but, going into yeah, it. Yeah,
2: but... Um there, there, there was a time where a child was told by its parents I can't, we can't afford to send you to college so then so then, the child did um, things like didn't go to college for a few years, became a mature student instead, worked in England to get the money, medical students joined the British Army so their medical fees would be paid and so on there does now a, seem to be an expectancy that somebody's going to pay for this based on the CEO. The second thing with your experience of America and of course you're quite right at their, it could cost you 60000 a year for an Ivy League school or such but you could also go and they'll probably kill me to the University of Middle Tennessee in Murfreesboro uh, right yeah. where the degree won't be great yeah. now why would you want to go there in the first place if the actual degree isn't going to be great
5: yeah and there was a very interesting study on the back of that by President Obama a couple of years ago where they were actually able to track the value of the education coming from the university and they were able to track it by students who got state grants, state aid and state support or federal support and federal grants and so forth. And so I think that's something that we need to look at much closer in terms of actually wh- where is the value in the education itself or are students getting the return on the investment. Now, we certainly don't have the problems in Ireland where you would have, say, in the UK or the US where the level of student debt is abs- absolutely enormous. You know, they're coming out with maybe $120,000 or maybe 50 or 60,000 pounds we're not quite there, but the problem... But the pros-
2: sorry, Frank. the proposal is for student debt.
5: Yes, absolutely. And that's the issue. And I think broadly we have to say is, you know, going back to what President Obama did in the United States, say, does US education pay for itself? Because it is a hugely emotive thing. But if we look at disciplines like nursing, for example, you've now got to go to third level to get that nursing degree. Whereas in the past, you could have gone off to a, a, a training hospital and you were trained up on that. and You had hands-on experience and there are different arguments, pro and on that. But there is that system where you have to now go through that. So I think the issue will be, does it pay for itself? Okay.
2: I'm glad you raised the nursing thing. Okay? I, I mean... Are, is care better? Is the nurse who comes in and this isn't, this isn't um, a criticism of nursing per se but is the nurse who comes in to look after you in a hospital? Is she a better nurse because she has a third level education or was the nurse who looked after you 30 years ago who, did a, who became a nurse by a different route? Uh, was she better or worse? Now I, yeah. I, I know there's things now nurses can give injections or do a whole pile of other stuff, paramedical mm. so we don't want to get into that that argument. But a ton of kids on these CEO forms are heading to the, the college of nowhere to do a degree in nothing and spend the next four years with something that actually hasn't any value.
5: And that's a really interesting point. The, the issue on nursing is a difficult one's hand. That's yes. a million euro question, because a lot of things have happened. You know, as a society, we've gotten sure. older. There was more sugar in the diet. You know, we've become more obese. That's a fact out there. And, and we exercise less. So all of these things are beginning to crash together. And we're finding now that in the hospital sector, we can't really measure it against what we did, say, 30 years okay. ago, 40 years ago. Okay. But the question ultimately is, going back to what the Obama administration did and this is really the key does the education pay for itself? And you can track that and they track it through uh, the income of the individual three, five years out of college versus what it costs but them.
2: A classic example, I, you know, applies to this industry. This industry is a declining industry. They, they, the readership in newspapers is declining. Um, the listenership to radio and so on, all these, be- because there's no podcast, there's all mm-hmm. these kind of things. Yes, we are churning out Like, no tomorrow journalists, graduates, Mm. for whom there Mm. almost certainly will be no jobs. Mm. Now, why are these kids being told by somebody Mm. go and do journalism when it's a declining industry?
5: Yeah, and I would say that, you know, on that point, personally, I pay for journalism because there are some publications which I've always read from my college days and and they're worth it because they do investigative journalism and I think that's what's really important. That's worth investing in. But the issue then on the back of that is that value sold. If we look at, say, populist movements around Europe why aren't states selling the benefits of taxation for example? Or when it goes back to what Germany did, you know, Germany still invests in those training programs and those uh, training plans out there linked to industry themselves. And I think... Are
2: you a better journalist? I have to stay on this because the nursing one was motive. The journalistic one isn't a motive. The root in journalism was that you went in and you bought coffee for the grumpy old uh, sports editor or whoever he was and then you worked your way up and you became a journalist but you learned how to spell how to paragraph and how to punctuate is a master's in journalism now going to make you better when you go along to that newspaper or radio station
5: I don't think so because what will happen is and it's the same in our own industry you know we have to do exams for example so I have to do become a qualified financial advisor and there are certain parts of the exam unless you're doing it every single day And unless you're out there practicing that business, that industry, that what you learned, you're going to lose it pretty quickly. And so to say that somebody says you're actually expert in doing this, you've got to actually be doing it. So an investigative journalist has to be out there doing it consistently. And if they're starting off going back to getting the coffee, They're going to lose some of those skills. And it's the same in our own industry. In our own industry, in finance industry, every single day you've got to be out there doing it. But
2: education is now an industry. So if we have 32 universities instead of four, we have 32 presidents. We have 300 lecturers. You know, the more universities we have, the more jobs we have for educators.
5: Yes, and I would absolutely agree with that. I would say that we're educating people as a social status rather than a life skill where we actually go out and use it. And that is the risk because the expectations and the cost of families are absolutely huge and the disappointment and the expectation and the cost on the the back end is absolutely huge. There must be value at the end of this, almost like an industry itself. You must ask what is the value being returned to the individual? You know, if my grandmother or my great-grandmother went to third-level education, you know, which they didn't, you know, would it have returned on them at that point? Yes, it would have, you know, 30 or 40 or 100 years ago, but today it doesn't.
2: But there is no quantifying of the cost of third-level education in this country. No. It's not so Correct. I mean, there's no quantifying yeah. of it. I mean, interesting you talk about your alma mater, which was?
5: Yeah, that was Providence College.
2: Yeah, yeah. you were an athlete, of course. So. Yeah. yeah, so I had a freebie. Yeah, like all the Irish fellas. Yeah. Uh, but um, but you were going to a college, Providence College, a Dominican College, mm. costing sixty thousand a year mm. now. So the cost for here is three thousand in fees. Then you have maybe up to sixteen hundred a month on rent. Then you have to eat, and buy a few drinks, and get the mm. bus and a whole pile of other things. Now, if you quantify that over four years, that's an awful lot of money.
5: Mm. And one thing I would say about Ireland is education is extraordinarily cheap compared to what they are trying to do. Cheaper than anywhere cheaper than many places, not anywhere, but many places. Europe, we tend to have a lot of, there are a lot of, you know, free education out there, you know, so so the pressure is always on. And the argument is that colleges who charge a lot more money have better standings internationally. So, you know, is Trinity worse than a certain college in the United States because it charges a lot more money? I, I don't think so. You know, I think the value coming out of Trinity is extraordinarily high. The quality is extraordinarily high. But the pressure on families ultimately is, it's a financial pressure, it's a social pressure as well. And so... You know, did I do better? Well, it depends on the course you do, and I think that is the issue as well. Too many courses out there offering too broad an experience don't get you ready for life. You know, some of the people I've seen graduate from from my own class were a CTO with Facebook who did, I think, a political science background or a history background. You know, that is a very broad skill and it is pliable right throughout life because you can learn.
2: But but if you do degrees that. In essence, of no value, yeah. then there's another insidious cost on the way, which is you know better to do a master's because the bachelor's degree wasn't good enough.
5: Yeah, and that's what I see often. You know, what I would feel with certain degrees is certainly do you need to train four years in college for it? Probably not all of them, and that's, you know, that's a personal opinion. But in terms of master's, I will always say generally, you know, why do you go back right away if you've done a business or finance degree undergrad, why are you doing a master's right away? Because you need some experience. And the one thing I would find is there's no point in me, somebody coming into my office and they're suddenly to get a master's degree and I'm going, well, you still have to go out and get the coffee.
2: All right, uh, the uh, a lot of people reacting. I fought to get points to go to UCD to do social science in the nineties. The, you then had to do a master's to become a qualified social worker. Um, so uh, then, if you think your education is expensive, George, try living without it as Pat. Um, can I tell you the name of your my guest? I absolutely can. Uh, Frank Conway, founder of MoneyWiz, and I'm sure if we got on to Google, we'd find your best time. For for the 1,500 metres. Maybe. Meters, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and my heart bleeds, as that the day of Cork, about the cost of parents of third-level education for their child. I live a stone's throw from UCC and I'm surrounded by student houses. 50% of them have cars, despite the fact they live within five minutes of UCC. I don't believe you. Uh, the majority of grants go to farmers' kids, business people, and the so-called disadvantaged Anna said from Wicklow, and she said nurses were better in the past. Well, my thanks to Frank Conway, a founder of Moneyways, on the real cost of college for parents. Coming up next, uh, do older people get a fair deal from the fair deal scheme? High Noon
0: with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.
2: All right. uh, Welcome back. I was talking, of course, about uh, Barcelona. One listener says, you ask what are we to do? It's too late, George. And uh, I like the one which says, why don't you sod off to America, you disgusting little man, and cozy up to your Nazi-loving friend? There's only one error in that entire text. Um... Little is a bit much to describe uh, somebody who's six foot three. That's non-factual. Otherwise, the best of it is absolutely right. Uh, I'm cozying up to my Nazi-loving friend. Now, in the studio with me is Chief Executive of Alone, Sean Moynan. Um Because, Sean, you're talking about the fair deal scheme, uh, what are your issues? What are your concerns?
3: I, I think in some ways what we're trying to do is have a conversation. Earlier in the week, there was a whole conversation about vac- vacant houses and older people having to lease them out. We really want to turn that on its head and really have a conversation about the housing needs for older people. Uh, we, everything we do is to help people age at home and age in their community. And that's actual government policy and it's what everybody agrees on. So what we need to do is create choices and alternatives to nursing homes for people.
2: But it, it, it,
3: do, do you not get the
2: sense, as the chief executive of a loan and somebody passionately involved, uh, like your founder, in the whole idea of people living alone and older people, but not necessarily living alone, they they, talk, they floated a kite about capital gains tax, for instance, on the sale of the family mm. home. Then the minister comes out and starts talking about leasing out your house and all that sort of thing. At no point, and presumably this is what you're, what you're at, at no point is the government talking about where are older people going to live?
3: I think that, that, that's the whole thing. We all know, we hear it every day, rising demographics, aging society, but, but we're not having the conversation we need to have, which is how, how much housing do we need for older people? Example, social housing list is going up at, for people over 65 is going up at 12% a year. Right. And that's been happening the last three years. If that continues as we go, older people will be looking for a third of the housing that's been built under the current strategy. So we're not having a conversation about the alternatives to nursing home, people ageing and maybe choices for older people in the community. And if people feel that um, older people, you know, are in big houses and all these types of things where you get all these pushes on people, we need to create choices where people might my might trade down if there 's something in their community but I mean that 's why the kite
2: and i 've no doubt it was a kite if they bring in capital gains tax and sale of the family home, then they, they at a stroke
3: stop the idea of older people trading down absolutely at a stroke a- absolutely, and this idea that I also think the whole housing crisis and there's a housing crisis for older people as well is, is is all, you know, we're talking about vacant properties. A lot of those properties, when you dig into the CSO numbers, most of them don't exist, right? They're, they're what was empty on census night, right? And that could be people on holidays and everything else. So when you go through the first cut what you find is, is the occupancy rate in, in Dublin is, is actually 99.2%. Now full. The em-
2: occupancy
3: rate. Yeah. If, if, if the full employment rate is at three or 4%, I would say if the vacancy rate in Dublin is 0.89%, I would say we're probably full. So we, the energy that goes into these types of schemes and into these things, we think takes away from the energy that public servants and, and departments need to actually provide supply of housing and that's what everybody need and older people are the same as everybody else that where there is a shortage of supply of housing and for cho- and choices but speaking to you you there is because there is a
2: shortage an undeniable shortage we are setting people actually against each other in a way in that younger people are saying why, why are these older people living in those houses when I could be living there or why should somebody uh, get a house and there's only two of them, whereas there's me and four kids, why don't
3: I get it aren't
2: we, aren't we setting that kind of thinking up?
3: I, I think that's the whole point, that's the whole point we, where we've sort of come out in the media this week is, is, because maybe people are being given the impression, a bit like that horrible phrase people talk about who's breadbockers, will. People get the impression that older people are the the issue around housing and that ultimately there's all these housings to be had. As I said, there isn't the vacant houses in Dublin that people think they are. That's the vacancy rate on on census night. And ultimately we need to concentrate on supply and we can't have older people blamed for something that the state built for 60 years, and then stopped building the state needs to go back and build houses again.
2: but it's interesting, you used the word "bed blockers, but when you were talking about it, I thought you were going to come out of the other one. You've been low in and the chief executive of a loan is empty nesters. If somebody called me an empty nester, I, I have to say, I thump them. you know, because it is such a derogatory phrase. it says like your children are left, and why the hell are you living in a house?
3: I, I think so, and I think that's the thing we're, we're called. Why are we, called, we using words for old people? Why are we using derogatory phrases? I have no idea, and I think that, that, that's the thing. I think, go back to your idea of a kite. Maybe it distracts from the lack of supply from housing. Maybe it distracts from where we need to fix the problems. So if you take in hospitals, we what we need is supports in the community to people, keep people at home. And then we, what we need for housing, what we need is is the concept in the current plan for housing there's a plan to build housing with supports for older people an alternative to nursing home but there's only a plan to build 50 units we figure the demand in the country is around four and a half thousand
2: um, I, I think I'm almost certain it was alone, but it was a number of years ago on on the old Right Hook program and it was one of the most emotional interviews I think I've ever done with a lady, a mother um, who gave the, the the property to her son on the basis that she could live upstairs and live out her final years in get a bedroom, and then she came home one day and essentially the door was locked and they were doing work in the house and alone. I'm pretty certain it was alone. Um, alone had got now got her housing, so she was in a house and she was happy. But I read somewhere that the incidence of elder abuse by families, their families, is growing. Do you have evidence
3: of that? I, I think that elder abuse is always hard to nail down because it it's one of those things that happen within families or, or, or relatives or, or friend, friends, where where people are dependent on an individual that can be taken advantage of. And, that, and that's, the, that's why it's very hard, and it's very hard for older people to report because they may lose that support that they rely on. And that was a, sto- a story from ourselves. Currently in our housing, of the older people are coming from homeless services. And what people have to realize is people always say, oh, 79% of older people own their own houses. That means 21% don't. That means over 100,000 don't. Now, can you imagine where those older people are in where there's rising rents and they're on fixed incomes? Maybe 230 quid a week. Yeah, and it's a very simple story. Maybe your your partner passes away and then 230 a week, now you've lost half your income. How do you pay the rent? You're not very attractive. The whole focus is more and more people going into rental accommodation. But the problem is, is once you get to a certain age, rental accommodation isn't, you aren't very attractive to it because okay. you can't pay the, the yeah. increases. Well, what about the older
2: Germans or older French people
3: or older Italians or older Spaniards? How are they working? Out? And and I think this neat thing is, is, they have much more commercial principles to renting. So ultimately, you know, if you rented a shop, you might be able to get a 25 year lease. So what happens in Germany or France, there's access to those. In Ireland, whereas over the years we have strengthened the law, you are never more than two... You could be renting the same house for 20 years, but you are never more than 200 days away the landlord wants to sell, if the landlord wants to do major renovations there are three or four reasons but ultimately is is you could be there 20 years you get 200 days notice and that's the absolute max. So ultimately is is that lack of security will always force older people or sorry force people to want to buy but unfortunately it also creates what could be a huge crisis long term where older people may may end up not being able to cope with the rents.
2: Uh, somebody says fairness in a text. Fairness and Fine Gael are not compatible. I increasingly feel that way.
3: Well, I think what happens is... Or maybe
2: fairness and Irish governments
3: aren't compatible. I think maybe it's the thing is is like you were saying earlier about kites. Maybe there's other places we have to go that are also equally hard decisions. Maybe there's a site tax to happen. Maybe the planning permission people have to use derelict sites, you know, to get much more housing. Maybe we have to take a situation where the state does need to go back to build. And these are all hard decisions that we feel now just can't be avoided.
2: All right. Thank you so much for joining me. That's Chief Executive of Alone, Sean monahan And as Sean confirmed, that extraordinary interview I did a number of years ago, which I can remember to this very day uh, of that lady and the way she was treated by her son. Um, CPO powers, Ed says, will be abused by left-leaning councils. Those who selling their homes will be forced to accept lousy prices. Uh, this government, George, will sink if they touch our hard-earned homes. And uh, the finally, if the state needs to start building housing, is it only because those people who need them are largely too late, lazy to get up and earn living for themselves? Um, I, I expected a text like that because that what bedevils the problem. Uh, the number of lazy people out there uh, is a lot less than I think uh, middle class people texting radio stations sometimes think. Sean, thank you for joining me. Thanks
3: for the opportunity.
0: High Noon with George Hook Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland
2: and the UK. Time now for another edition of George's Favourite Films. Uh, I'm joined, of course, as I am every week, by lecturer and film at Trinity College Dublin, uh, Stephen Benedict. You'll find him at stephenbenedict.ie. Stephen, welcome to the programme. Good to see you again, George. Now... I've often said when talking to you that uh, modern people who, everything they watch, colour television, colour movies, Mm -hmm. they kind of look askance at black and white. I think we're going to watch now a movie. That actually couldn't have been made in colour, No, no, I sense. no, no,
6: no, it couldn't. It wouldn't work, I don't think, in, in colour. It works perfectly in black and white. And
2: the movie is? Casablanca. <laughs> now, there's a lot of people whose favourite movie this is. I yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. You're not alone in this. But I think it's, it'll be interesting just to talk about some of the background details of the film. We've got to understand that when we look at it today, we're looking at a fantastic romance. But the movie was made as blatant propaganda back in 1942. Um, The thing was that uh, Roosevelt was having at the time, prior to the the attack on Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt was having a hard time persuading the American public that getting involved in the war in Europe was a very, very important thing because the vast majority of American electors were isolationists. They wanted America to 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 stay apart. So what Roosevelt did was he very cleverly recruited the Hollywood studios and the Hollywood studios said absolutely yes, because the vast majority of the Hollywood studios were run by immigrants who came from Eastern Europe a Jewish five that's, that's precisely the point that's precisely the point the Warner family who ran Warner Brothers who made Casablanca came from eastern Poland
2: yeah and then you had Sam Goldwyn you had all these that's guys that's right Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, yeah who were oh, and they understood they, they got it, it. they got yeah. the
6: existential threat because yeah. they had grown up witnessing and being victim of the pogroms in Russia correct so the, the, the story actually begins in the summer of 1938. There was a, an American couple, Murray and Frances Burnett, and they were traveling to Europe to help Jewish relatives out of Austria, which had just been annexed by, the Nazi, by Nazi Germany. And on the way back, they went through the south of France and the Burnetts were witness to an evening in a nightclub where they saw a jazz pianist regaling a crowd of native French people, Jewish refugees and Nazis. And that scene then turns up in Casablanca, where they play the Marcellus, which for me is the single greatest moment, single greatest scene in all of American cinema. So we have the clip right here. The Hold on! Whoa! Up. Back
2: up the tr- truck! Hold horses! I agree. You do? Oh, I can't. I uh, actually here's the back of the night. I was on a flight, the mm. transatlantic flight, mm. and they I'm going through the thing, and they've got all these classic movies. You see, and I go to Casablanca, and mm. I don't watch Casablanca. because this point not on I, a plane? <laughs> yeah, yeah, on a small screen. Yeah, I just scrolled straight away to the Marseillaise. Yeah, and watched that one piece. It, it is, is unbelievable, spine-tingling.
6: Yeah. Now, uh, for the audience, I think we've got to to give a little bit more backstory here. You know, um, there's no point in filling in the plot because I think all our most of our listeners, if not yeah. everybody, will be familiar with the plot. But the the scene is about defiance. Okay. And the, the scene begins with the Nazis singing uh, "Die Wacht am an Rhein." Um, and in order to, for them to sing the song, they've done something that actually happens off screen. But if you pay close attention, it's very, very crucial. They're playing it on the piano, and the piano belongs to Sam, played by Dooley Wilson. He's the only black character in the story. He's African American, which means that a group of white supremacists have commandeered the workplace of a black American. That's the beginning of the scene, and then Rick sees what's going on. um, Rick sees what's going on, and then Victor Laszlo, played by Paul Henry, decides that he's going to drown out. Uh, the, 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 the Nazis thing but
2: but the, 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 there's a great moment in this also I mean the whole scene yeah it's, it's just incredible it's... but but Paul Henry had mm-hmm. escaped the nazis that's right because he was a, he was he was german that's and right. he had escaped and so this is real you oh, know uh, the people in this are real yeah. and Henry wants to play the Marseillaise, but of course the band won't play it because it's Rick's nightclub. So they look at Rick and Rick gives, gives the this nod. nod.
6: That's the important thing. And they thing. play. Yeah. Now, it, you, whenever we're on, we always talk about the support characters and the the, the, yeah. the the bit parts. Now, the character of Yvonne, who is Rick's on and off again girlfriend, is played by a French actress called Madeleine Lebeau. Now, I want to focus in on her because her story is integral to this scene. She fled France in June 1940 with her husband after the Nazis had invaded. And she went down, she followed the route just like the characters in Casablanca. They went down to the south of France and across Spain, into into Portugal and on to Lisbon, which is where, you know, the letters of transit in the movie are supposed to escape and get the plane to Lisbon and then across the United States. What happened then was she got on a boat. She secured a visa to Chile and the boat took her across the Atlantic but docked momentarily in Mexico. And only when she arrived in Mexico did she realise that her visa was a forgery. So she had to get off the boat and then she was stuck in Mexico for quite a while. She spent two months trying to get a visa. The Canadians allowed her in. Once she secured a Canadian passport, that's when she got into the United States. Now, the reason why I mentioned Madeleine Bow was because she was traveling with her husband and her husband was Marcel Dalio. Now, Marcel Dalio was born Israel Masha Blaushield. And we can guess that he was a Jewish, a Jewish man in France. He was a major actor in the French film industry. He appeared in films like Pepe Le Mocot. He appeared in La Grande illusion directed by jean Renoir, starring Jean Gabin. And then he also appeared in The Rules of the Game. Now, Marcel played Émile de Croupier, in the film.
2: Really? Yes. So
6: when you're looking at that film and you see people stand up to sing the Marseillaise, importantly, it's the Marseillaise, not the American National Anthem. This is an American movie extolling the French virtues, liberty, equality and fraternity. It is an explosive scene. It's and spectacular.
2: I, well, I never knew about the creepy. Right? Every yeah. time I talk to you, I get something new. But there's great sub-characters. I love the barman, you know? <laughs> the Sasha. fellow with the pencil moustache. <laughs> then, Peter Laurie, who has so a grotty. very small part, yeah. but in the big because he's got these letters of Trans- transit, like and you don't know what they are for a long time. Mm. Um, so he comes in, then he's shot by the cops, and then there's a wonderful guy who plays chief of police, Claude Rains. Yeah, now another favorite movie of mine, which we've done, is the Adventures of Robin, Robin Hood, Hood, directed by Michael Curtiz, <laughs> who directs Casablanca, and Claude Rains is the cowardly sheriff of Nottingham. That's remember? right. <laughs> yeah, but he's brilliant because he's so cynical in Casablanca
6: he is is, yes now also the one character actor one support actor whom you haven't mentioned and I'm glad you let me mention is Sidney Greenstreet and he runs the Blue Parrot up the street and he comes to Rick now this is a very very telling important moment in the film he comes to Rick and he says I want to buy the cafe and he says it's not for sale and he says what about Sam and Rick says I don't buy or sell human beings and we can see that very, very subtly, this film is a, is a critique on America as well as America's foreign policy. Because when Peter Lauer's character is shot, sorry, he's apprehended and shot by the police, one of the characters in the, in, the, in the cafe says, Rick, I hope you'll be more friendly when they come for me. And Rick says, I stick my neck out for nobody. And then Captain Renault, played by Claude Rain, says... A very wise foreign policy. So Rick's character is the embodiment of America's foreign policy, and he, he he's presented initially as an embittered, very very cynical man, but becomes very very idealistic towards the end because of Ingrid Bergman's character, Ilse.
2: Now, I way. Within the last 10 years, yeah. I saw Casablanca, when we used to do movie nights yes. on my my old radio program, yeah. we did Casablanca and I saw Casablanca on the big screen. Mm. Now, I probably hadn't seen Casablanca on the big screen for 30 or 40 decades, years, yeah. you know, Ingrid Bergman. Luminous. God above. L- when you saw her on a big screen, she just was the most beautiful woman imaginable. Yeah, yeah. There's another guy in it, besides I love the small guys mm. in it. There's a fella called S.K. Sakal. He was called Cuddles Sakal, <laughs> right. And he was the kind of wager. Yes. And in all the parts he plays in movies, he really is Cuddles. You mm. know, he's a lovely fella. He's got five chins and all that sort of stuff. But he, apparently, in real life, he was the furthest thing possible really? <laughs> from Cuddles. He was a dreadful word I can't use, but he was. Right. Yeah. Never knew that. Cuddles. Cuddles. The ending as well. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. where uh, just, it's, it's just everything about this.
6: It's a miracle of a film because they were writing as they went. I mean, they didn't have the ending before they started writing the script. And so before they started shooting the film... Um, coming back to Ingrid Bergman, I just want to focus in on her character because she, is, she personifies decence and virtue and purity and freedom in the film. And there's a crucial moment that uh, happens in the marketplace. You may remember there's a lovely market scene where they're down the bazaar and they're, um, she's, looking through, she's looking through lace and Rick arrives. If you look very, very carefully at her costume, she's dressed in white and she's got a, a lovely white hat. I remember. That's right. Now, it's not a hat, George. It's a halo. If you look at the shape of it, because she's
2: saintly. And if you, then, if you there look, are different movies you see from I see. Well, no, then if you
6: look at Humphrey Bogart's character, he's dressed in grey. He's not black. He's not dressed in black like the Nazis. He's dressed in grey, but he's not dressed in white yet. And he wears a, um, a striped tie, and that striped tie is echoed visually throughout the story because there's bars and all throughout the movie and because Casablanca is an open prison from which no one can escape. The entire movie is predicated upon the notion of freedom. And that song, when they play the Lamar is an explosive scene because its it, it, it localises what the movie really, really okay. is about.
2: Now, if, in the unlikely event, there are people listening who haven't seen it... They're right? in for a great time. I defy them to see, watch it and say it's not great. George's favourite films... I, I didn't deliberately do my sort of number one, number two, number three, right, because right. they're all my favorite films. But I tell you, I, I, this movie just grabs me right, and, and the Marseillaise, you're right. Mm. And, and without the Marseillaise scene, almost, you mm. could say, Casablanca might be a different movie. But there you are. George's favourite film, Stephen Benedict with halos and bars <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. I'll have to watch it again just to understand it more. It's uh, Stephen Benedict in film at Trinity College Dublin and most importantly you'll find him on stephenbenedict.ie another favourite film next week. High Noon
0: with George Hook Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.
1: Lee Keegan is expected to be back in the starting 15 when Mayo named their team for Sunday's All-Ireland Senior Football Championship semi-final against Kerry at Croke Park. The 2016 Footballer of the Year was named Man of the Match in the Westerners' quarter-final draw with Ross Common. He sat out the replay due to a foot injury but is said to have returned to full fitness. Kerry are also set to name their team today. Scott Hogan could be back in the Aston Villa team to play Norwich at Villa Park tomorrow. The Manchester-born striker, who's declared for the Republic of Ireland, suffered an ankle injury against Reading on Tuesday problem is not as bad as initially feared though Hogan has applied for an Irish passport and could be added to Martin O'Neill's squad for the upcoming World Cup qualifiers against Georgia and Serbia and Cork City can move a step closer to the SSE Air Trustee League Premier Division crown tonight the siders will move to within five points of the title if they beat Sligo Rovers at Turner's Cross
2: George Alright Ross thank you so much I'm joined now on the telephone by security analyst for the Journal.ie, Tom Clone and Tom welcome to the programme
7: Good afternoon, George.
2: Now, I actually uh, have. There's so much about Barcelona on so many radio, television, and newspapers that um, I'm, I'm thinking about what's new. So, what I mean, Simon Coveney, I want to go about. Simon Coveney says that an attack is unlikely, even though we should be vigilant. What does that mean?
7: The government are sticking to the line that. Uh an attack on Ireland is, in theory, possible, but not likely. And I, I up until about a year ago, I would have agreed with, with that position, but I think events in the last year uh, have changed my mind about that. But, I mean, it's just my opinion, so your listeners would have to make a decision or a judgment on, on the basis of Simon Coveney's background and, and my background. I mean, I've been in the security space for 27 years, George, and particularly with the Stockholm attack, you know, a neutral country, a car driven up the street like Grafton Street, ploughing into people, you know, excellent uh, social and integration programs. They just weren't uh, considered a target. They didn't consider themselves a target. So I think after that attack and after the arrest of members of Islamic State or alleged members of Islamic State in in Dublin, the... uh, revelation that one of the uh, London Bridge attackers lived in Ireland for a while, I, I think I would say that uh, I've, I've moved away from the situation where I believe an attack on Ireland is, is in theory possible but unlikely to a situation that uh, I would say it's, it, we have to consider that it is a distinct possibility.
2: The relationship with the United Kingdom after Brexit, for instance, um, the, the Britain would be absolutely crazy to have an open border in which every danger man could come into Ireland and then get to Britain. But forgetting that and just staying where we are how we have seen, not just the fellow who lived in England, we've seen major fundraisers being arrested, have we not? We have seen, um, I don't know whether they're terrorists or not, I don't know what they are, but we've seen fellows with a bucket load of passports. Uh, We've seen all sorts of people who've been involved somewhere in this activity. Is that not so?
7: Well, Ireland has the same um, participation rate uh, in jihad and, you know, uh, cr- criminal activities in in Iraq and Syria. We have the same participation rate amongst our uh, passport holders as as the UK and other European countries. And we, we know that up to 30 or so Irish citizens have, have gone to, to fight in uh, Syria and Iraq, and, and some of them indeed have been killed, including one of them who was a child. Who's a minor, which begs a whole pile of different questions. You know, how did how did how did he get there? I was sixteen and a seventeen-year-old at home. I, I can't imagine allowing them to to go off to to fight somewhere. But look, uh, I want I wanted to make the point, George, because I, I was listening to you in the first hour about about what's happened in Barcelona. I, Irish people were caught up in the attack in Barcelona, and my sympathy goes out to the family of that young young little boy who's had his leg broken. Irish people were caught up in the, in the London Bridge attack. We had Irish people shot in the Bataclan Theatre. We had Irish citizens shot on the beach in Tunisia in Sousse. So uh, Ireland cannot consider itself apart from or different or that we're a different category of population to anybody else. The fact of the matter is, George, the vast majority of Irish people, when they're abroad, um, we're English-speaking, and we tend to congregate in the same places as, as British and American and French tourists, so, so we're a target. So, you know, the the Barcelona attack. The, it was selected because it was a very large pedestrian area. I drove down Las Ramblas about three weeks ago in a Ford Transit van that's adapted for my son's wheelchair, a one seven one D registration. I couldn't believe it. I was actually able to drive right into Las Ramblas. There were no bollards. There were no protections for from anybody entering onto that um, central. Um, pedestrian area, which is quite large. And, you know, so there's two one-way side streets that run parallel to the pedestrian area. They're both one-way. One goes down the hill towards the Christopher Columbus Monument, and the other one goes up the hill towards the big plaza and square where you can get the the bus to the airport. And I drove up and down those. And I noticed in other Spanish cities, for example, in uh, Salamanca and Toledo, I was unable to get my car into the city centre where... Uh, the pedestrian areas where I have to put the wheelchair down because they had bollards. Uh, you have to yeah. talk into an intercom under a camera, and, and the police operate those, and they want to know, why do you want to come in with that vehicle? Uh, they want to see it. They, and, and so I think all across continental Europe, after the Finsbury mosque attack where uh, a right-wing lunatic terrorist drove into the, the Muslims trying to worship there, after the Charlottesville attack where you had fascist terrorists drive into uh, protesters, Westminster Bridge London Bridge Stockholm no, Nice yeah. uh, you know, after all these vehicle attacks these are going to be a feature of okay. uh, the terror threats throughout continental Europe so I think when you have a big pedestrian area like that I think it is you, there is a duty of care to just put down the right, oh, Hold
2: while, yeah, while now. my guest is security analyst for journal.ie Tom Clonan interesting text from David Henry and Mary Street the busiest pedestrian thoroughfare in Dublin still has car access at both ends uh, what about Grafton Street or Temple Bar uh, no sign of barriers and no visible armed guardian. Now I'll tell you why there are no barriers if you put barriers uh, and close off Grafton Street or Henry Mary Street and so on, the retailers will, ki- will kick up an enormous fuss. They'll say we have uh, Councillor Cuff at one end trying to close off the city and now we have the security experts to closing it off at the other end.
7: Well, I mean, look... Uh Tragically, if if people don't feel safe in the city centre, you know it, it'll it'll damage business. But George, I mean, I don't I don't overstate this. I mean, I I was in the south of France last summer with with my children, uh, and in fact, we were in Nice at the time of the the Bastille d'Ai attack. And I knew going to Spain this year that they're at level four of their threat levels, um, I, the second highest level. In other words, if they go to the next threat level after these attacks they'll have armed troops on, this, on, on the streets. And when you go to France, uh, I drove back up through France to get home and at the motorway tolls and on the auto routes and at the ferry port in Calais, you have armed troops walking around. They say to them, merci, pour votre sécurité, have a chat with them and, and so on. But like, I know the risks, but I would still, I would go to France, Spain again in the morning in, in a heartbeat. What my, my concern, and I think you probably share it, is that um, I, I think Irish people should travel to Spain. They should travel to France and enjoy it the the chance of being caught up in a terrorist attack are very very small you're you're of greater risk of being knocked down by a car because we tend to look the wrong way because they they drive on the on the different side of the road but i do think that irish people are entitled to have uh, an understanding of what okay. the threat is yeah, but, and um... and we and we don't get that here and i think your bland statement to the effect that an attack is not likely here i think that's unfair You know, in Britain, they have the Run High Tell program on YouTube. People can Google it. You'll see the Metropolitan Police Forces have a very quick, informative video what to do if there's a marauding attack. And similarly, in France and in Spain, in the, in the supermarkets, they have cartoons on the walls that show kids and people what to do when, when there's an attack. And what you do is you get out of the area. I heard I, interviews on Irish radio this morning of Irish people who ran into restaurants to seek shelter. That's not a good idea. All right, those but people, you, hold on now,
2: Tom, Tom, hold on. Yeah. It's all very well saying, I'll go to Paris or I'll go to Madrid or Barcelona or whatever because the incidence is very low. I I and I accept that. Um, the the one thing though is we're talking about Ireland and Irish people. As I said this morning, Protestant, Catholic, Jew or Muslim, Irish citizens are entitled. be protected, even though in our case, if a car drove down uh, Grafton Street, it it would probably kill more foreigners than would Irish people, because we're at the height of the tourist season. Similarly, in Barcelona, people from Turkey 54 different countries have been injured. So therefore, we're sitting on our hands. How many Muslim speakers have we in in the Garda Shia Khan? How many, whatever, they, Farsi or whatever they speak, how many have we got? None. I there haven't seen, none. as far as I know, I haven't seen, I haven't seen a well, guard in a turban yet. I know no, that's well, totally different. But I, why I know, are I we know. not doing that?
7: Well, I know from my own contacts with them in that they don't have any... Um, Arab or Farsi speakers, and um, they do have access to some translation um, services and some interpreters, but they don 't have the kind of the, the the language skills and and The guards have pointed this out themselves they don 't feel that Angarda Shei Khan is, is diverse enough. The guard representative association went on recently. The guards do a, a tremendous job under under enormous pressure um, You mentioned it in the first hour they 've been hit with a series of scandals morale has been affected by that but they i know that the 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 the, the, the crime um the, the anti-terrorism people in garashiqa are very creative and are very inventive right. and are really reaching out to the you know our vulnerable citizens who are are vulnerable to being groomed. but the primary targets of islamic state their their primary targets are are muslims uh, and you know really these attacks are designed to draw to drive a wedge between um, the Muslim community and, and the rest of society, you know, irrespective of race, colour, creed or, or religion or none at all. And I think it, it, at a time like this, it's very important that we stand shoulder to shoulder with our <clears throat> Muslim brothers and sisters because they are horrified by this. It is abs- in the same way, George, that you and I were horrified in the 80s and the 90s by attacks in, in Britain, uh, by the provisional IRA, their bombing campaigns. That's how... All right, well, Tom,
2: it. Tom. if the Gardaí here corner cannot uh, stop Kinnah uh, H- Hutch and Co shooting innocents in the street, which might well have included toddlers. Now, if the Gardaí can't do that, speaking the same language as the, as the people with the guns, with presumably pretty strong intelligence, if they can't stop it, what chance have they got of stopping somebody who doesn't speak the language, probably has fake ID, and has probably travelled through uh, the airport this morning, on some kind of of amnesty or asylum-seeking route. And furthermore, when they do catch guys and they want to send them back from whence they came... Amnesty and other liberal groups are to the fore saying we can't send them back to be tortured. I'm telling you, if they were going to deport me, my first defence would be I'm going to be tortured and then I can't be sent home. This, we're like, we've got to get serious about it. We, I mean, we really have to think that it might happen here, not the balderlash from, yeah. from well, government.
7: Well, you've made a number of points there. Look, we know, and... I'm from Finglas myself originally. I'm very proud to be from Finglas, and I believe that Finglas and Ballymon are not the set of love-hate. They're wonderful communities with great people like myself. Uh, They're not all drug addicts and and armed criminals, so-called organized crime. Um, So I I absolutely abhor the shootings in Balbutcher Lane, Ballymon, where where people were gunned down outside their own homes. But can I just say, we, we know like the Balbutcher Lane shootings, We know that these terrorist attacks, if somebody's going to take a a vehicle and just drive it up onto the footpath and and hit people, we know you can't prevent that. The name of the game now is how you respond. Now, I was surprised in this Ramblas attack that the driver, who it's believed may have been a 17-year-old, Musa Wukhibir, how did a 17-year-old manage to get that far down uh, Ramblas and hit so many people, swerving, I believe, as he went, I know the area, of you its know, flimsy fold-up chairs and tables on the street, little kiosks selling magazines, but there are armed police all along there, Squadros Mossos, which is the Catalonian police force. So there will be questions about how how that driver was able to get so far down Las Ramblas and hit so many people. The um, incident in Camberl seems to have been closed down much quicker. They're wearing suicide vests like the London Bridge attackers. And I'll tell you, George, the holy grail for these guys is when they're finished the 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 ploughing through people and then the marauding, evolving attack involving knives and guns. The reason why they're wearing those suicide vests is because they want to try, or fake suicide vests, they want to intimidate and get into a building and and create a barricade or hostage Mm -hmm. incident. They tried to do that in London. They were beaten back with bottles and chairs. They couldn't do it. So, look, it's how you respond. Now, across Europe, they've invested in their security and military infrastructure to to deal with it. We need to do that here because our Mm -hmm. defence forces are way down under strength. So are the guards. The big question, though, George, is why are angry young men from the Middle East and from North Africa carrying out these attacks?
3: Who's
7: who's funding Islamic State? We need to sort out the problems that were created in the destabilization of the Middle East and North Africa before this phase of violence. And it will end, but it won't end until North Africa and the Middle East are stabilized somehow. And, And your friends in the White House, Mr. Trump. I'm sorry, I'm not confident that somebody like him will be able to do that. I think he's going to pour petrol on All the fire. Right,
2: we'll agree to disagree. But anyway, look, we've got to work out the expenses at back in Temple more before we try and stop terrorism. That's the key thing at the moment that's exercising the Commissioner. My guest from journal.ie, where he is security analyst, Tom Clonan. Cavan County Museum, it's National Heritage Week. They've got a heck of a program planned and they're going to talk to me about it none to mention next, here come the girls after that
0: High Noon with George Hook thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK
2: Well, my next guest has come all the way from Cavan County Museum to talk to me about uh, National Heritage Week in general, but how the Cavan Museum is celebrating. It is Savina Donoghue, curator of the Cavan County Museum. Savina, thank you for coming down. Uh, It's really good of you to do it. Um, This is a special weekend, really, because... I'd forgotten that in 1947 they played the All-Ireland final in New York and Cavan were in it.
4: Yes, George, and that was a very, very unique occasion, of course, because it was the only time in All-Ireland was played outside of Ireland. And Cavan, with Kerry, travelled... to the Polar Grounds in New York and yeah 70 years this year now some Kerry people will say we stole it but we are delighted to say we won it. Yeah
2: and, and what's the museum doing for the 70th anniversary then? Well
4: actually at the Taste of Cavan last week which took place in Cavan, we had a lovely exhibition commemorating the 1947 match and we uh, really it was lovely and all the coverage we had lead up to the match, the match, people at home listening to the match so we told the whole story that happened 70 years ago so it actually went down really well and we're actually bringing it out again to Virginia show which is happening next week so the 1947 has been well remembered the whole experience So it moves
2: does it? You can
4: move the we can exhibition move. We, we like yeah. to do exhibitions that can move around and bring out more to the community right. and, and it's good and then it gives people a chance and we get a chance to talk to them All so right. it's good it's really I
2: broadcast good. from the Virginia show many years ago now the other thing was I remember talking about like this a number of years ago at the Cavan County Museum you have World War One exhibition what's that all about?
4: Well um, in 2014 as part of Cavan County Council's Peace Programme uh, they decided to do something that would uh, educate people about World War One. They did many things, but one of the things they wanted to do was recreate the trenches. And at the museum, the museum is an old convent, and we're very lucky because we have about 12 acres of land around the convent. So we were able to use one of the fields, turn it into the World War I trench experience. And George, it's the largest trench in Ireland or England, uh, the one in, that we have at Cavan County Museum, the largest trench replica, I should say. Wow. So that's um, big. Now, just
2: before we talk more about the museum, is this in Cavan Town, No,
4: no. The, no. the museum is in Bally James stuff. Wow, of happy memory. Yes, right. you know, Percy French and come back Paddy Riley. <laughs> yeah. So it's in Bally James Duff. Wow. It, it's located in an old convent okay. owned by the St. Clair nuns. Right. And in 1992, the were only two nuns left in the convent, so they put it up for sale. And Cavan County Council bought it. Now, how does a fellow
2: like me get from Dublin to Ballet James oh, right,
4: It's very easy, really. It's And it's getting easier all the time with the new right. roads. And so you just come into Virginia and in Virginia you can veer left and you're at the museum in five miles. It's, it's very it's very easy to get oh, to. I,
2: now... I'm always interested in museums. The first, the first museum I ever went to was in Fitzgerald's Park in Cork, and the second one I went to was the Imperial War Museum in London. So museums are fantastic, particularly for younger people. Like the World War experience of a World War One experience of a trench, I think would be extraordinary. I think. Um,
4: And that's the feedback we're getting. We do a lot of uh, education uh, and we have a great programme for schools that come to the museum. It's really, really worthwhile. And the the feedback we're getting is the whole experience of walking through the trenches. They're 350 metres long. There's 6,000 sandbags used in the construction of it. So visitors and especially young people get that experience of walking through and it's, it's more than just reading off panels and learning. They're, you know, and they get, to, they get to try on the uniforms. They get to hold guns. They get to do all this kind of... And it's, wow. It stays in their memory and stays in their learning. So we find it is working well. And then, of course, for anybody who had anyone involved in World War I, it's, you know, it's sad and it brings to life Very what emotive, life... Yeah, it's, yeah. It can be. Well, when
2: we go into the old convent then, when we go into the museum, mm-hmm. what are we going to find there?
4: go to find lots of lovely galleries we have of course a lovely GAA gallery which we just spoke about um, we have a lovely famine gallery if I can call it lovely but it tells the story we have a folk life gallery where we recreated a thatched cottage and we have all the old implements that farmers and people would have used years ago You, I, I, I
2: for me you kind of glossed over the famine because yes. that again is another huge part of our history and has affected the country to this very day the it famine. Does, yes. What what would I see when I look at the famine well, exhibition?
4: What you'd see and what probably I find the saddest part of that exhibition, we have on display uh, old famine shoes that we have on loan from Fermanagh County Museum and they were actually found at the Earl Hospital at a graveyard there and the shoes of people that were worn during the famine and there's a lot of children's shoes. It's very sad Very, very sad. And then we'd tell the story of how emigration, the coffin ships and, you know, it's something, it's a sad story, it's a sad part of our history. So you'd learn about that and you'd feel the pain that people felt.
2: Yeah, because like that was the greatest, apart from the deaths from the family, it also was the greatest single movement of people mm-hmm. prob- up to that time, yes. certainly. Yes. Because the population of Ireland at that time was, I think, 10 million or so, yes, and we actually dropped to about two and a half at one point, yes, so um, this is an extraordinary story. What about Cavan? I mean, we're going to a museum in Bally James Duff, the Cavan County Museum. It, 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 do we, does one also, because I know very little about Cavan, not my yes. neck in the woods. Yes. Do I do I get a sense of Cavan when I go there as well? I now? think you
4: get a great sense of Cavan. And Cavan is a county it's a beautiful county with the, all the lakes. They do say we have a lake for every day of the year, with 365 with the lakes and drones but in the museum there's a lovely sense of the history of Cavan. You get a sense of the minute you go in the door, you see a lovely map of Cavan that points out, you know all where you are and where you're going. It's just it's it's yeah, it will give you a good now, sense. Now,
2: one of the things people get quite incensed about in different countries is paying for museums. So do yes. I have to pay to get in?
4: Very little.
3: Okay.
4: <laughs> Very little. <laughs> Very. We do have a small charge because our our overheads are course, are, yeah. are really are really good. But and
2: you do things like family tickets. We probably, do family do tickets
4: for twelve euros, and we right. do a, you know five euros uh, for an adult, three euros for senior citizen or students, and. It, and we've never, I don't think anyone has ever complained to us So about I'd that. get in for three euro, would I? You would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would. <laughs> I didn't no, want to I'm say. really
2: interested like, in this because I could imagine bringing my grandson. So now at an age where, like, the famine and the trench, I don't know whether it would become part of their schoolwork or not, but yes. even the idea of education, for yes. me to them, I'd love to do that. And... and uh, I'd buy a family ticket and bring the two of them in. Now, because when I went to the Lambeth War Museum, yes. where my father brought me there, and I was only eight, I learned a huge amount about World War One, and stayed with me all my life. Yes. So it'd be interesting um, to see how my grandchildren might it'd be react. very
4: interesting to see how they would respond, how they would talk about their experience of of walking through our, you know, trenches. And can I just tell you too... Um, George, in the same space, in the garden outside oh, where yeah. we have the trenches, just to the right of that, we've recreated a replica of the GPO to commemorate 1916, and we have five exhibition galleries just behind that. So that's all in the one place, in the one garden. In the All right, so,
2: so my grandchildren, are go, both yes. boys, they're going to see the GPO as it was in 1916.
4: Yeah. And what they're going to learn, I hope, is the choices people had to make at that time in our history, and right. why some people made those choices. And we've heard lots of stories about that. Some people went to World War One, some didn't, some went to 1916. And, you know, we've heard so many stories in and around that. And we tried to focus the exhibitions that we did on choices.
2: But it also seems to me that at the Cavern County Museum, of which you're the Curator, uh, and my guest, of course, Savina Dunner, who's the curator, and came all the way from Gavin to talk to me. And um, what really I like about this is whether it's the famine uh, or the the cottage, the replica, or the World War One trenches. We, particularly for young people, we have to make we have to make it more evocative, don't yes, we? Yes, hands to
4: make on, lifting history off the pages. And at one part of the museum as well, I just have a little area for children, smaller children can play and little games and little things so they can play if their parents want to go around. So I like to think that the museum is very child friendly and we have a lovely playground beside it as well. So it's, it's um, yeah. yeah, children are very important.
2: And coffee for the old coffee, age Coffee, yes, coffee, no, I yes. Don't. John, yes. I'm sold already. Yes, if yeah. I can get a cup of coffee, I'm no, on the way. No, good well. coffee. Well, my guest is the curator of the Cavan County Museum. I mean, it was enthralling stuff for the last 10 minutes or so, listening to what they've done. It's an extraordinary achievement. Sabina Dunn, who is the curator and no doubt responsible for much of the work. Uh, I'm going there. You ought to go there too. Coming up next, here come the girls. High Noon
0: with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17
2: hotels across Ireland and the UK. Welcome back. It's time for Here Come the Girls, me in the company of Theresa Lowe of Theresa Lowe.ie, media trainer, barrister, and a whole lot besides. Uh, of course, the uh, great Dr. Sabina Brennan from Trinity College Dublin Brain Health. And our own Andrea Gelligan, featured every day on High Noon at 12 and at 1. Ladies, welcome to the programme. Hi, George. Hi, George. Good Lovely morning. to be here. What about a ring? How many rings have we got in the room? Well, I've none. Uh, but uh, we've, we've, we've only you, Teresa, so I'm going straight <laughs> this, to you on the ring.
8: Yeah, this is about the engagement ring. Well, oh, yes.
2: when you married Frank and he was kind of impecunious on the piano, yes. playing the Grafton Street Very for a true. few bob... Uh, did he buy you a big well, ring? He was on the late
8: late show at the time. But in those did he days Did you buy a big ring? He I'm did asking. not buy me a big big ring. Look at this. Look at this. Is that it? That's it. And can it's big. T- no, no, the one in the middle, George. The one yeah, in the middle. It's big. There's, a, there's a wedding ring, there's an engagement ring, there's an attorney's ring. But my engagement ring is, is a lovely little ring, small, but you see that something is missing. A diamond? The stone is missing. Oh, I it see. It was a very, very small, very light-coloured sapphire. Yeah. Uh, and it's surrounded by... It's a small... It's a lovely little ring, but the sapphire, sadly, has been missing for the last year. I, I kept snagging it on things, and one day I looked down and it was gone. Yeah. Now, we're 30 years married. My heart is broken. And so I'm Do you know how much you story. paid for it? Yes. How much did he you pay he paid for it? He paid 1400 for it. Funnily enough, it was in Cork. Michel's in Cork we were down doing Blood Brothers down in Cork Frank was the musical director and I had one of the chorus roles in it and he 1400 he engaged I'm, we got engaged alright now yeah. can
2: I just interrupt you because I am uh, married 48 years Gosh. and I bought the ring for Ingrid up at the top of Grafton Street. Uh, I don't know whether the fella is still there or not. I don't think he is. I paid a hundred quid for it.
8: Forty-eight years ago. Was that a lot of money then? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but she was grateful.
8: Absolutely. But I
2: mean, it's also... I had I had rescued her from spinsterhood. Hmm. Now there's uh, Andrea. There's this How woman galant. here, Cribbin, that apparently <laughs> yeah. her her fella who earns a ton of money only bought her. An engagement drink for
9: 1300 Yeah, £1,300 sterling. But I think her big issue, it's actually not the fact that he bought her a ring that cost um, £1,300 sterling. It's the fact that he earned six figures. That's the issue. So if he didn't earn over 100000 I don't think she'd have had the same issue. I think that's her problem. That she's aware of how much his monthly income is and his annual income is. And that's what she's the big gripe about.
2: But Sabina, seriously now. Like, yes, I, I joked about saving Ingrid from spinsterhood. But I mean, seriously... Isn't marriage and and all that thing, you love this woman and all that sort of stuff and you promise to look after her forever, is a ring on her finger that important? I mean, the size of it or the cost of it or whatever, is it important in your view?
10: Well, I think it depends on the individual. I do think it's very individual specific. And I went and, and did a little delving around this topic because I have absolutely no idea how much anybody should spend on a, an engagement ring. And I found a website where you can actually calculate how much you should spend on a wedding <laughs> hmm. ring. So it's based on things like um, what you earn, um, Do you uh, currently pay rent or own a house? But other more interesting things. So there's loads of financial stuff. But other more interesting things are, is she pregnant? Um, How attractive is she? How attractive are you? Um, Is she good um, in the kitchen? Um,
2: in the uh, In the kitchen. The is kids. she is she a wild
10: cat in bed? Has she ever cheated on you? Another question was: Has has well, she ever the ring. has she ever caught you on on uh, cheating on her? Now the thing is, you answer all the questions, right? Well, so I answered, I answered all it. those
2: questions. Was no, no, so, no. So no, no. so
10: I answered all those questions. You know, to get what I would figured have been the, oh, the, yeah, the most yeah. you mm. should spend on a ring. So for someone earning a hundred thousand, which is the bottom of the six bigger range, um, they should uh, spend $29,000 it was an American site on a ring. So then what I did was I went back and I removed little items. So I took out if, if she wasn't good in the kitchen you should only spend 27900 on her. <laughs> if she wasn't a wild cat, if you removed wildcat in bed you got the same sort of amount. So kitchen and bed lost you the same amount for in, in terms of engagement. <laughs> but here's a really interesting thing. One of the questions was, you know, it starts on... How often do you have sex?
2: Hold on, You're not married. How can you be oh, having well, sex?
10: There, here's an answer to that. So You're if, she to, now. If, she, if she was going You're to if she was going to me now. If she was going to wait until she you, you, yeah. you were married, then you spend 28,800. However, if you were only having sex 4 to 5 times a week, only spend 27,000. Oh, one to on. three times a month, sorry, a month, um, only the 17. On but the rough, but here's the here's, here's here's the key one that really bothered me. So I left everything the same and I just pulled out if she was pregnant. Yeah. Right, you everything else the same. Nine thousand seven hundred. You lose yeah, yeah, yeah. twenty grand if, if you're pregnant. pregnant. If she's not yeah.
9: pregnant, But, always, but any of my George, I have to say, around. for any of my friends, any of my male friends that have got married and proposed um, to their to propose to girls and are now getting married, I asked them what's that? What was their guide for? Like, how much are you going to spend on the yeah, ring? Like, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So in the in the case where either they were buying the ring for her or letting her pick, it's it's three times their monthly salary. So if you're earning whatever. Fifty odd grand. Well, Say so your take home every month after tax is about three thousand. Then the ring is going to be nine. That's how much you're spending. So it's three three times the monthly take home pay. With that's you, roughly, roughly what with,
8: with Sabina's um, uh, recommendation. That's American. You're <laughs> getting a ring worth a couple of euros. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's not Teresa, my recommendation.
2: Maybe sure. Irish guys are we, are, are... Can we bring this back, you and I, yes. as the only two sort of relatively sane people in the <laughs> yeah, studio? <maybe>. Thank <laughs> you, George. Yeah, yeah, that's I just so want to ask you this question, <laughs> Teresa. I, I, because I asked everybody, mm. how important to you, because like Frank the great frank who loves you dearly yeah. still after 30 years how important was the actual ring forget about the price of it I tell just you the actual ring how I, important i can was tell that? you
8: I have never had any interest at all in jewellery. When I was on television on RT, Ward would bring me earrings and all that. And I hated all of that stuff. It really was only a symbol. The only thing is, and it's the only jewellery I wear. The only thing, I was sad that I lost the stone. Yeah. But, but I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll find something that will replace all it. All right, and so... It, I really don't put much store in it. No, I agree. And I disagree. And this lady who went on to Mumsnet, this website... I wondered, why did she feel that she had to share that with everybody? If she felt upset and that she wasn't being valued, why didn't she say it to her fiancé? I think she
10: had another issue, though. He picked the ring. He didn't involve her in the picking. Now, I have to say, I I don't have rings. I am going to be... It's my wedding anniversary tomorrow. I will be 30 years married. And I have managed over the years to lose... My engagement ring uh, and replacement engagement ring. So, um, yeah, because uh, you won't bare. <laughs> my well, yeah. fingers are bare. We we won't talk about that. But I would have
2: killed
10: him if he went and picked the ring without yeah. my without consulting me. Well, we picked the ring
8: together?
2: Well, no, actually, interesting. Guys
8: are getting married. Do they both have engagement
10: rings? Yeah, two oh, well, guys.
2: Yeah, guys are getting married. Do my son. guys get married now. As yes, well. they George, can. George, yes, my son two, got married, and, and married, on the twenty
10: second of July to his now husband um, and they, they did exchange you know, Do they have engagement they it. rings? It well they don't they that. have beautiful wedding rings now okay. but they did exchange some jewellery um, yeah. when...
2: I got had a wedding ring mm. right when I got married a wedding ring now, when What I other time would up, you get a wedding I know, ring? I <laughs> know we're just trying to explain right and I was a champion debater at this point right and I soon after I got married I'm speaking in a debate and I'm fiddling yeah, with the I ring know. the entire time and the, the adjudicator says you know I'm, give, I'm giving him a pass mark rather than an honest mark because he was fiddling with his ring so I took the ring off at the next debate left it in the toilet and haven't worn the ring since you
10: see I'm the same I think that's what happened to me yeah, you know I fiddle just, and then and I, I never take it off
5: I know, in case I ah, Listen, we've I've done no fun rings. So I want to go. <laughs> yeah. on,
2: I want to go on serious topics. Um, and uh, I like giving you because you're so smart, you women. I like giving you topics that you know nothing about and aren't prepared for. Sabine, I want to go to you because oh, you you're give a brain specialist. No, you're a brain specialist. Um, People on mobile phones, yes. uh, apparently, getting accidents, getting off trains and everything else. But now there's another report that a high percentage of children cannot kick, pass, catch oh. or run any kind of a ball or engage in sporting activity because they've been on their phones all the time. Yeah, I How dangerous are phones, as an expert... Uh, are they to your brain health and physical health, in your opinion?
10: So in my opinion, and you're just throwing this out at me, I only heard about that report actually um, on the radio um, this morning myself. Um, So I think what's important to understand, like with any new technology, is that is how it's used and whether it's used in moderation. So I firmly believe that smartphones are, you know, a good step in technological progress. And I think our children can be safer, aside from these silly little accidents that we might talk about later, but they're safer in that you can be in contact with them, they can contact you, you can, you know, mark where they are. However, if we're talking about being on smartphones all the time, instead of engaging socially, for example, there's research shows that if you use social media um, to you know, as your own, you know, as as a as a platform to replace conversation. Well, no, if you use it as a platform to go from online to offline, i.e., you know, we're going to such and such a place. Will you meet up? Can we go? Then actually, it's really beneficial. But if you use it to replace social contact and social engagement, it's detrimental right. to your. Well, health.
2: Andrea now, who was born with a mobile phone or miss <laughs> because she's the youngest person in the studio. Have you got your phone on at night, like?
9: Oh, I would. Yeah, I I am I have no problem. In admitting that I am addicted to my phone. And it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I constantly... Actually, funnily enough, I don't have my phone in here in studio with me for once, but my phone is usually never out of arm's reach. But why don't you smoke instead?
8: (gasps) But it happened
9: to be one bad habit that I never managed to pick, you, pick up, but it is. But it's I, terrible. I, what
8: are you doing? Are you looking at news? Const-
9: you- I'm constantly on Twitter. Twitter is a big thing. Are you? Like, yeah, constantly on Twitter. never got hang yes. a hang of that stuff. And it's a real, and it is an addiction, like, it's terrible,
2: like. Theresa, you know, said you have your phone on at night when I, you go I, to, I to bed? I sometimes
8: the- listen to music because I have terrible problems sleeping. And I'm reading um, a, a good crime thriller at the moment. And, and I love, I love this moment you're holding your phone you're reading this book and suddenly, oh, suddenly there's a I thought you were in bed I'm in bed there's a and clapping. you're holding the phone your phone has dropped to the floor because you're just in that beautiful stage of, of falling asleep but she can I say about that. this report I'm, I'm just reading funnily enough I'm, I'm here <laughs> with, with my phone, phone. reading the story about children and stuff um, and, and, and there's a couple of things going on. I think it's the fault, actually, of schools. And I think because of insurance problems, schools aren't allowing children to yeah. do as much as they should physically. Mm. In the yard, are not like allowed the old to plane. run. Yeah. They're stopped and you have to walk slowly and you can't do this, that and the other. And they're, they're terrified of claims. So there's that. But, but, but some of the statistics from the story, one third of uh, kids can't bat a ball. Um, and, and less than half of boys can strike a ball with a bat. Um, and and there's problems with girls. But uh, I know
2: I I'm, I'm not hand. I'm in a fairly mature neighbourhood, so there aren't a ton of kids around the place, you know. Yeah. But but you don't see kids kicking footballs in the street. But I remember growing ball. up,
9: George, like, and that's as you okay. I'm, as you mentioned, I'm the youngest person in the room, but it's so it's not that terribly long ago. But did he say that? He did say that. How rude! <laughs> I know, but no. But the point <laughs> I'm making is that so it like I remember mobile phones came out. or the fifty one ten was available when I was probably in my mid-teens, but I remember as a kid like we were always outside, all of the neighbours every yeah. single afternoon after school, every evening kind of playing, like, you know I don't know, running whatever, games, different things and I see with my own friends' kids now that are kind of three, four and five, it's just I know, know I'm going to have all the parents given eye to me now for saying this, but it is so much easier to give them an iPad or a phone Absolutely. and, th- I, you know, yeah, and throw on I, Well, can, it's yeah. a
2: huge advantage if you're a parent and you have three kids. Now, my mother or me Like, if you had children around the place, there was noise. They were kicking stuff over. You were perpetually on the key vive, like, wondering what the kids were going to do next. What you do now is you give them three iPads or three iPhones. They don't speak to you or they're siblings they don't speak to anybody they yeah. don't do anything So to motor skills
8: that. are down communication skills yeah, are down they and, and this must be This report was between uh, it examined children from 4 to 12 um, their motor skills it says are so bad they exercise as if they're in their 30s which is shocking or older whenever they take part in physical activity So I think it has to be a question Of course it's easy to hand kids um, technology and, and, and to occupy them that way but people have to stop doing that and they have to get them out I think of it's the
9: moderation because I do think it's, it's great to see young but just to admitted no, to being
2: a junkie.
8: I, can, can I, <laughs> but moderation a, a, a with hindsight six-year-old moderation. A six year old child whose motor skills are like an, an exercise. 30 year old. His skills are like a 30 year old, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, yeah.
2: I turned the phone off at six o'clock. Do you? Yeah. And to hell with uh, Sabina knows. George like, never answers yeah, his phone I never answer the well, phone Sabina not. tries to contact me They say me that
8: and you can't, can't That you should If you want to sleep You shouldn't Within two yeah. hours of going to bed You should not uh, Have, have any kind of emails Or any kind of That's Stimulation right. at all
2: Other than Pamela Anderson I find <laughs> uh, She gets me to sleep But other than that George, I, You sure. know no I know about this. this is a serious question No but I do you're know You're trying this. to contact me And yes. you're trying to contact me By phone you can't get me. No. Because you ring after six o'clock. But you're an force. exception. You're, you're
10: you're 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 sort of an exception in you know in, in in the position that you're in. But can I go back? Because I actually do know about this. I do give talks around brain health and sleep and the importance of sleep and technology in the bedroom. And one piece of advice is to actually take technology out of the bedroom altogether. Mm. So the reason being that when you for a number for a number of things, one of them is that the blue light that is emitted from our screens, from our phones, from our iPads, um, from our computers actually tricks your brain into thinking that it's daytime Mm. melatonin is released so it actually confuses your body clock and so it makes you a lot of us look at netflix for example To, to relax in the evening. There's two things wrong with that. The melatonin, it actually wakes you up. Secondly, the content of what you're viewing online, if you think about it, no matter what genre you like, if you like, you know, thrillers or whatever, there's probably going to be violence. If you like romance stories, somebody's probably going to get ditched somewhere along the line. So actually, they're going to set yeah. your brain off thinking mm, on things. Okay. So, no, I just wanted to say yeah. one thing about kids. I did a recent study, um, pilot study, I've, I'm developing materials for kids, brain health for kids and each week they have to they we learn about a part of their brain and, and what's good for it. And one of the challenges, on one, we set a challenge for them every week, was for them to put their technology out of the bedroom. Now, there was lots of different challenges over six weeks. This one, kids in fifth class... None of them could do. Yeah. They couldn't oh, leave the technology in the bedroom. Andrea,
2: Andrea yeah. I, I like I you're a junkie with telephones concerned and uh, crucially Dr. Sabine Brennan, expert of brain health take the phone out of the bedroom and use the bedroom for the activity for which it was designed <laughs> <laughs> and which Teresa Lowe and I are engaged in seven nights a week sleep well trying to <laughs>
8: sleep. But you're not, get, <laughs>
10: not getting enough and sleep anymore.
8: And that's all anymore. that goes on George, isn't that right? That's well, word, yeah. for the public, but you and I know
2: better, <laughs> Teresa. Wildcats in the bedroom. We know As no more earlier <laughs> Sabina Brennan was talking I tell you about.
10: I was One funny thing, it's going back to what Teresa said. Going back to what we were originally going to talk about, which was this Erin Road Erin study that said smartphones are blamed for train station accidents. So I went and looked and see what else, what other accidents smartphones mm. have been blamed for. So there's loads of statistics out there, but um, you know, 43% 3% of people have walked into something while glued to their screen. Screens, right? I, I want to laugh when I even just think about these things. It's terrible. Don't know what that really says about me. But it says, um, some 60% of young people have managed to injure themselves by dropping their phone on their face.
8: On their face? <laughs> <laughs> on their,
10: on their there's, there's also
9: <laughs> more, taking more, taking multiple like. reports about talking about people who, they're the kind of injuries people suffer while taking Had selfies. Been. You know when they take a really? selfie, you have the Why photograph turned around to to face you? be because but they're, they're trying to take, take a selfie. selfie and they're near the edge of a footpath oh, or a c- cliff, and <laughs> next thing they fall because they're trying to get oh, the perfect yeah. selfie and get the, you know the nice mountains and the What's sea a in the background. A selfie? a selfie is a photograph that you take of yourself. So instead of you know you getting Teresa to take a photograph, I of I you, know what a taking, selfie it, is you actually. Of you've
2: because you've because got long arms we No people come to me and say, "Can I have a selfie?" So I know what it is. I have never in my entire life. Taking a selfie yeah. of myself. They're incredibly unflattering. Well, unflattering. No, if, if you do them
10: from above, there's I'm a certain angles that oh, I don't care about. we will we'll, we'll practice one well with my I, the if I got George. the stick,
8: you can get a long stick, George, and you can put the the camera at the end of the stick. And then people get injured a, with a, a long bedel, stick. So. A long stick that you attach to the phone. <laughs> blackthorn Do you know what? Well, let's let's move on to something else, George, because this is getting monotonous. George, have you ever heard of a thing called
10: a shiwi? A what? A shiwi. What's
8: that? I'm asking has George
10: ever heard of it. It's in bed at night again. It's more than in bed. It's like a
2: superstar. You never
8: ask a question you don't know the answer to. I shouldn't have asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, what I'm interested
2: in, because my grand 12 year old grandson is interested in it. Why is Brown Thomas's open for Christmas, Teresa?
8: 130 days before Christmas, yeah. Brown Thomas's opened. Well, I'll tell you why. Just looking at the, uh, the uh, you know, first of all, when I heard about the story, I thought, oh, for God's sake, bah, humbug. And then I saw the pictures online, and I kind of like Frosty the Snowman. I, I melted a little in bit. In August. I know, one hundred and thirty days to Christmas. Now they they always they, a spokesperson said that they always um, do this the third week in August. Apparently, in I think in London, I think Harrods open in July their Christmas shop and uh, because there's a market for it and the, some of the places Selfridges start uh, at the first week of August. But
2: you could buy some Dame a hugely expensive present mm. Andrea mm-hmm. in Brown Thomas's and then you ditch Dame in November and you bought this present for her.
9: Yeah but the Christmas shop is more about the, the whole festive decorative side yeah. of course. Like, not. It, it is yeah. It, it, and I, like look at it I mean they've opened their shop yesterday for was it yesterday well certainly the publicity around it was yesterday so it's novelty. Look at the free publicity we're talking about it it was yeah. in the news all day yesterday I think it's a really smart marketing Just, tool and, and that's what that it is and
8: people are dying uh, to spend money it's sold you, by November the, good, well, the, yeah, the really stuff, good decorations yeah. and people I are mad to Christmas. spend money George
9: right, Do I,
2: <laughs> I don't buy Christmas presents anymore right I haven't bought Christmas presents for years humbug. No, what I do is I write a check for each of my children oh, and I put it in an envelope on the Christmas mm, tree.
9: I'd be okay with that. And, and
2: you
10: use it, you okay. reuse it every year. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> and the same cards.
2: When when that's I lovely. used to shop for Ingrid, when I used to at Christmas, I used to start between four and four thirty on Christmas Eve.
8: We're the same, Frank and yeah. I. Four. Uh, Grafton Street, four o'clock. I yeah. don't believe it. Yeah. And then he'd say, "Let's go for a cup of tea first <laughs> So we'd be wasting that half hour as well.
2: <laughs> but it's all um, bad humbug, rubbish yeah, anyway. Shopping, yeah. Christmas is about kids, yeah, and oh, you yeah. know, all that kind of fabulous. Uh, stuff. Uh, yeah.
10: No. I. I. Yeah. I think it's about putting people under financial pressure when they mm. really could do without it, and there's there's pressures to buy things and all that But this whole Brown Thomas thing, I really just think it's a, it's you know, it's a commercial publicity But it's what
2: about the pressure, though? It, 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 like, it's all very well for us, typical kind of middle class people who have, have always kind of had Christmas and all that sort of stuff. Imagine the pressure on people, Andrea, mm-hmm. who are poor, living in yeah. difficult conditions, mm-hmm. and the pressure on them to get something for their children at Christmas must be enormous. Oh, it's yeah. incredible,
9: yeah. and like we're all—we're all, we're not even. You know, we're just starting to approach the
2: back to school costs. The parents
9: are setting money aside at the moment for, let alone even beginning to think about Christmas. There's one thing I know they do years ago, and and I presume they do it in most toy shops. I don't know, but I know certainly in some of the family run toy shops, they do it. I know definitely at home they do. um, Where they have these kind of payment plans where parents can put aside, you know, maybe five euro a week at the start of the year into a plan. So they know when it comes to, you know, Spending money at Christmas around Christmas time and buying presents—that there, there is some money that's We're set aside for going Christmas. to. Lo- but I do loan think it's an assistance.
8: Just it, that kind of it. A- if you if you have the money and you know you can't judge everyone. You might think people who are middle class can afford Christmas, but you'd be very surprised mm. at how yeah. how tough it can be for them. In in our case, we reuse the same ornaments that we've had for like twenty years. Oh yeah, we yeah, don't really in our buy house, anything <laughs> it's different. You know.
2: You see, it, but buy
8: something. Buy your present. Buy something
2: nice. Yeah. And
8: then why don't you make a, a donation to Barnardo's, who gives presents to children at Christmas. I, my <laughs> thanks
2: to the girls, News Talk's own uh, Andrea Gilligan, uh, Teresa Lowe of Teresa Lowe. ie media trainer, barrister, so she can get you on the radio and then when you're taken to court as a result <laughs> of being on the radio, she can defend you. Sabina Brennan who can delve into your brain and find out your innermost secrets that you haven't told anybody. My three guests, my thanks, and we'll have more at this time next week. High Noon
0: with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.